Welcome once again for our 56th episode of Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton. Glad to be here this week to dig deeper into the book of Exodus. Today we're going to cover a large chunk that all goes together. There are four miraculous provisions given to Israel, but then also we have the first battle that Israel fights as a nation. So we're going to look at the last part of chapter 15 and go through 16 and 17 this week. So as we look into Exodus 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and he tested them there, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Israel has finished crossing the Red Sea. They have sung their songs of triumph, as we heard last month. Now they go three days into the wilderness. We go back to chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 27. And this three-day journey is what God sent Moses into Egypt to tell Pharaoh anyway. So, is this area of the wilderness of Shur, this region, this place called Mara, where they were supposed to go? No. Had Pharaoh allowed them to leave, the Israelites would have been at Sinai in three days, according to chapter 3. Verse 12. The wilderness of Shur, though, has significance in the history of Israel. The wilderness of Shur is the same place Hagar prayed after being kicked out of Abram's house, Genesis 16, 7. She was by a spring of water there. Ishmael lived all his life in this area, according to Genesis 25, 17, and 18. So now we get to the waters of Marah. Mara meaning bitterness. This is roughly the same word used in the book of Ruth when Naomi says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitterness, because God has dealt so bitterly with me. It comes from the same root, pretty much the same word, just the Hebrew's last letter in the word is different, which makes it slightly different. So then we're there at Mara, and the water is bitter. The people complain that there is no drinkable water. God provides water by having Moses throw a log into the spring. If we were to follow Barnabas and some of the early church fathers who would automatically turn this into an allegory of the crucifixion, we would say that the bitter waters of Mara symbolize the struggles of this life. Water is a most basic necessity of life. So that would make sense. The log cast into the water would be Jesus' cross. 
We could then make the case that God orchestrated this entire event simply to be an object lesson that we need to have faith in Jesus and everything will be made right. And we would have good scriptural proof to do that. Verse 26 all but says it. But many take this idea too simplistically and literalistically. Yes, it is true that Jesus will set everything right. This happens in the world to come. It isn't promised here. Shouting Jesus' name as you're getting ready to fly off a cliff in your car will not make you immune to the law of gravity. Jesus will not, in all likelihood, literally take the wheel and keep you from going over the cliff. If we understand this lesson properly, it best teaches us that God will provide for our needs even and especially in the midst of our struggles. He will always provide for his children, just as St. Paul reminds us in that all-too-misunderstood verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 God provides for us at all times, not just in the times of prosperity. Today's readings and the whole wilderness wandering are good examples of this. Continuing his provision, God leads the Israelites from the waters of Marah, where the water had been scarce, to Elam's twelve wells and seventy palm trees, adequate shade and water for their encampment. And then we move into chapter 16, where we have two provisions here. First one, we have them having to get to the place where they again grumble. So 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifth day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. The Israelites reached the wilderness of Sin, in which Mount Sinai is located, some 30 days after leaving Egypt. The 15th day of the second month, when they arrive at the encampment, compares to the 14th day of the first month, which is the Passover, which is when the tenth plague happened. So a month has passed, and we're finally in the wilderness of sin. So we pick up in verse 2 through verse 8. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The Israelites move on from Elam to their next encampment, and there's a problem. They're hungry. Their thirst has been apparently been taken care of, but they had run out of food. God wasn't going to let them die of hunger. They were his people. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had promised a savior through them. He did not bring them out to die. 
He brought them out to bless them. God promises bread from heaven. He would provide enough for all the Israelites to eat their fill of bread. However, as we'll see in this first instance, people won't follow his instructions for it. They will either make something great out of it or cheapen it with contempt. The day after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowd asked him for more. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. John 6, 30 and 31. They placed such emphasis on the manna, it became a measuring stick to judge the Messiah's miracles. If a supposed Messiah couldn't at least provide manna on command, he couldn't be greater than Moses as outlined in Deuteronomy 18, 15-18, and Hebrews 3.3. 3. On the other hand, you have this first generation of Israelites, the original recipients of the manna, saying to Moses, there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, in Numbers 21.5. This worthless food meaning the manna. Their contempt for God's provision was so great, his gifts were counted as worthless. Unfortunately, God's children have this tendency even now. We take away all the value from the things he gives us every day because they're not what we want or what we think we need. So now we have manna being promised in the morning. So we move on into verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay along camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Surprise. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day he gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when the, all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. 
Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Not only does God provide bread, he provides meat as well. God says, man shall not live by bread alone in Deuteronomy 8.3. But of course, he didn't finish that sentence with a commandment for meat. He calls for obedience to his word. But God gives the Israelites more than just bread in the wilderness. He gives manna and quail. Manna in the morning to bake bread to eat with the quail in the evening. Manna gets its name from the Israelites' question when the dew evaporated. The dew evaporated and the ground was covered with this fine white stuff. Everyone looked at it and said, Manu, what is it? How fitting that this sticks as its name. A reminder whenever they gathered it or told their descendants about it. Very much like many of the names of people throughout the scriptures. God's miraculous provision of the manna was great. Unless you didn't follow his instructions. Six days you gather it. The seventh day there will be none. On the sixth day you gather twice as much. But those who refused to gather double on the sixth day find themselves hungry on the Sabbath. God was angry with them because of their disobedience. It is interesting that he doesn't have their neighbors share their manna with them. So now we move into verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of an ephah. So far the end of chapter 16. An Omer of manna, one man's daily provision, was gathered and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. This is one of three things placed inside the Ark. The other two were the second set of stone tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And... Aaron's rod that budded. These three things show the great care God takes of his people and the testimony that goes on for the generations. So now we move into chapter 17. And the first half of this chapter is that wonderful story of the fourth miraculous provision, the water from the rock. We know this story from Sunday school. We know what happens. Because this is the infamous story where the Israelites are complaining that there is no water again. What's surprising about that statement? That there's no water or that the Israelites are complaining again? Well, if you followed along with Digging Deeper, neither one of those is a surprise. So we look at chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. 
Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This time, they're still not at Mount Sinai yet. They are encamped in Rephidim. This would be the final encampment before they found themselves at Horeb, at the foot of Mount Sinai. Their thirst, both for water and Moses' blood, was becoming extremely severe. God commands Moses to strike the rock and water will come out. He does so and everyone has plenty to drink. This is the first instance of water coming from a rock. The second time changed Moses' life forever. In Numbers 20, Moses is told to tell the rock to give them water. Moses gets frustrated with the people and violently strikes the rock instead. Numbers 20, verses 7 through 11. Although God brought forth water anyway, Moses was barred from entering the promised land. St. Paul has an interesting take on this rock. He says this rock followed them throughout their wilderness wanderings as an inanimate pre-incarnation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1-5. through This makes great sense in the view of God's presence with his people. It also has a parallel in the water flowing from Jesus' side after his death in John 19, 34. So we have the four miraculous provisions. The bitter water of Mara made sweet, manna from heaven, quail from heaven, water from the rock. We're almost to Sinai. There's one more test that has to be done. And that comes in the form of the Amalekites. Starting in verse 8 through the end of the chapter. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The Amalekites give Israel its first taste of battle, its first taste of war as a nation. God had not taken them on a direct route to the promised land because they would turn back to Egypt in fear if they had to face the Philistines, according to Exodus 13, verses 17 and 18. Now, God was going to show his people who they should look toward and trust. He also shows Moses that he can't do it all by himself, which we'll see more next month, as even his father-in-law says he needs helpers and counselors. But first, who are the Amalekites? This nation cursed that they would be wiped out from under heaven. They are the descendants of Esau, as seen in Genesis 36, 10 through 12. 
Amalek was the son of Esau's oldest son. And they settled in the land of the Negev, according to Numbers 13.28, the southern region of Judah. They were mostly destroyed by Saul in 1 Samuel 15. But even David still has some dealings with Amalek uh, throughout his reign. This battle, the first battle that Israel has to fight in its wanderings through the wilderness, was a great picture of trust. As long as Moses' arms were up, Israel was victorious. When his strength began to fail and his arms sagged, the Amalekites surged forward. When Moses became too tired, he was 80 after all, Aaron and Hur sat him on a rock and held up his hands for him so Israel would win. After all, how likely were they to go into a second battle if the first went badly? I would not be exactly thrilled with that idea. The battle forms part of the encouragement for Christian living in the hymn, Hark the Voice of Jesus Crying, number 826 in the Lutheran service book. Verse 3 of that hymn ends with Aaron holding up the prophet's hands. If you cannot do all of these other things, it says you can at least uphold and uplift those who are set before you to give you the word of God. Aaron and Hur were unable to take part in the battle due to their advanced age, but they did what they could to help in the effort by helping Moses. And as Christians, we're called to do just that. Whatever helps the effort of the war against the devil, the world, and the sinful flesh. It may be those of us who are called to be pastors are there in the pulpits forming the congregations to be evangelists out into the world. Those evangelists going out and sharing their faith using their words. And this is oftentimes the biggest problem is that people don't want to evangelize because what if I say the wrong thing? Well, then you say the wrong thing, you find out, you correct it, you move on. But fear is what stops us. Fear is what makes us lose the battle. St. Paul writes to St. Timothy, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and self-control. This is the spirit that we all have as Christians. This is the spirit that God was trying to show the Israelites that they had because he was their God. He was providing for them. And just as he had provided miraculous food and water, so also he would provide victory. And they would see their enemies vanquished before them because eventually he would come down. God would come down in the form of Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Mary and Son of God, to win the battle for us. To wipe out everything that the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh can do to us and promise us a land of rest. Promise us that promised land on the other side of the river of death. That is the promise that every Christian comes into each day realizing that we have this promise. It's ours because God provides for us. He does not leave us hanging on somewhere going, God, please help me. No, 
He is there with us, holding us up so that we may proclaim His goodness. It's hard sometimes, but this is what we wrestle with. This is what Christian theology is all about. That we have a God who provides for us even in the midst of our darkest times. Because He loves us and He gave His Son to die for us. That is all for this week. I encourage you to share this with your friends and family. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, it is available on all the major podcasting platforms. Follow us on Facebook. Read along with us on the Wrestling With Theology webpage. Join us for all of our segments, whether it's Moments of Meditation, Farther Along, Wrestling With Theology, Mormon Mondays coming up in March, Majoring in the Minors coming up in Lent, and let us see how we can further advance our own knowledge and better be able to wrestle with the theology around us. Amen.